Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. Thanks for joining us today. In today's episode, we're speaking with Rhett Kessler, the portfolio manager and founder of the Australian Equities Fund that Pangana runs and that Rhett and his team runs that invests in Australian equities in an absolute return manner. You may recall that we spoke to Rhett a little over a year ago, and I'd encourage you to go back to that episode, episode number two, if I think I or even actually number one in the podcast series, that'll give you a good foundation of how Rhett thinks about investment, the fundamental approach he takes, the absolute return approach, which we find is very much in the client's best interest and very pragmatic and also very useful in terms of the results it's produced has been very productive. In fact, over the last 10 years, Rhett has produced returns of 11.1% compound annual growth rate in the last year, he's been up 11.4%. What we love about Rhett is his pragmatic, very practical approach to investing that aligns with many of our clients' interests, and that is protecting capital first and then growing through sensible long-term investments that will show good returns, and that's exactly what he's done. In this episode, we speak to Rhett about his views on where the market is at the moment and how Some companies, in his view, have run beyond and have been swept up in sort of higher valuations and people getting uh, a bit excited and in front of themselves and valuations of multiples of 40, 45 times earnings against historical averages of about 15 times earnings. We also talked to Red about his investment into Bingo, the recycling company, and also his investment in CSL and Even though he loves the company, he's taken some risk off the table and sold down some of that position. Please remember to send uh, your feedback. I can be emailed at david.clark at codacapital.com. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast. That's helpful and share it with those that you think may benefit from it. Thanks a lot and enjoy the podcast. Of course, I encourage all listeners to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to be reminded that this does not equal personal financial advice for anyone's personal circumstances. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay, so we're live. We are live, Rhett. Welcome back to Inside the Rope, back after a year. Thanks for agreeing to come on again. Thanks, David. It's always good to be on the rope. Yeah, Inside the Ropes. Inside Inside the the Ropes. Always good to be inside the rope. Special access for people inside the ropes. On the rope doesn't sound that good. Correct. Rhett, um, Perhaps we could kick off with you giving us a little bit of an overview of what's changed over the year and your sort of current thinking, if you could, please. Hmm. So, David, I think a lot's changed in in terms of my thinking. Um, We are... I have been saying for a while that in spite of media and even the government's best efforts, the underlying economy economy is traveling quite well. There are, however, some red flags starting to appear. Um, One of them is not, the red flag is not appearing in my pokey machine revenue growth numbers, which are actually very robust at the moment. But that's a backward looking number. That says that there's a lot of cash. There has been a lot of cash around. Some of the red flags are, and and I center them all around inflation and the impact on disposable income. Mm So we think about things like interest rates picking up, and I'm not talking about in-cycle interest rates. 
talking about out-of-cycle interest rates, hikes. Uh, one example would be the move from um, interest only at the same rate as interest in principle um, to being a much higher rate now. Um, some of the banks have also put up interest rates since then out of cycle. The petrol price has uh, approached a near all-time high due to a high fuel price, like oil price, plus a very weak Aussie dollar. The Aussie dollar is also quite low, which is impacting inflation of all imported goods. And paradoxically, we're also seeing food inflation pick up for the first time. Now this, um, I think the early signs of the impact of this is that the consumer's feeling a little less wealthy, not helped by the fact that house prices have started to come off now cycling over a year's worth of declines. So we put these all together, we're, building, we're busy building a picture of an underlying domestic economy that has very well buttressed by full employment, yet we're starting to see signs of consumer stress. And that bothers us a bit. So what level, one of the questions I always love to ask you is what level of cash do you have in the fund? For the benefit of investors, you know, we haven't spoken a lot about your background, the way you think about things, the absolute return focus, all the things that mm. you know, I really like because we did the podcast a year ago where we covered all of that, thi that thing. So people can go back and listen to that if they want that background. But one of the things I love to ask is how much cash you hold in the fund not because I think you're trying to tactically hmm. move to cash or otherwise, but I see it as being the corollary of your ability to buy things at good value. And if you just can't find things at good value, it ends up in the cash bucket. Yep. So that's a great question. So we, when I look at it, and given my, my current feelings, I have a lower level of cash than I would expect to have. Right? So I've thought about that quite a bit. The level of cash at the moment is about 17%. Which is very high for an Australian equities fund. Very high for an Australian equities fund, but we've been a lot higher. So we've been at about 35 or 40% at yep. our ultimate um, concern when we haven't been able to find things to buy. And when I analyse why we're at that level, not higher, and why we are finding things to buy, is because the bifurcation between value stocks and growth stocks has never been higher. So for our listeners' uh, benefit, the way I define growth stocks is you have a multiple ascribed to a business which is quite high because in a few years' time, because of the growth in the earnings, the multiple will come down. And value stocks are those where the multiple ascribed to them is quite low because there's not a lot of growth. Now, we're ambivalent between the two as long as we can get the pricing right for either. So what we're finding is that the average multiple for industrials is about 20 times, which is very high. That's the average. At the moment. Historically, the moment. it's been around, what, 15? Around 15. And so that's the average. Now, what we're finding is there's a barbell, is that you've either got your sexy growth stocks, mm -hmm. which we've got what we call the bubble bucket. So if you've got decent liquidity and you've got a sexy story, these stocks are up at 40, 50 times. I loved it. In your last monthly, you talked about a charismatic management team, some technology, and, and a good story, you were yeah. in that bucket. That's right, and so, uh, and it's not my term, and another fund manager has come up with it, 
is that the, um, the normal, the, you, you get a, a methodology which is called GARP, which is growth at reasonable price. Um, he's termed this bubble bucket GASP, okay. growth at a silly price. Okay. So once we're up at a multiple of 40 times for a company, you know, future earnings, the question to me is not, you know, is that, is that reasonable? My question is, well, if it's at 40 times, I have no idea whether it should be at 45 times or 35 times. Because at that level of multiple, it's very, very hard to tell what the right multiple is. Paradoxically, value stocks, where they're typically your toilet paper and toothpaste type businesses, which are staples or things that people can't do without, but without a sexy growth story, are, traveling at, are trading at 12 to 15 times. And so we've been able to fill our portfolio, the 85, 83%, that's not in cash, into stocks that are at these kind of multiples. And it's that bifurcation that's happened that's allowed us to remain invested. What are some of the examples of those companies at that 40 times earnings? Are we talking about the REAs, the realestate.coms, and the Domino Pizzas? Yeah. Uh, are those the type of I mean, there's the Afterpays, the Wise Techs, the... Um, um, Reliance Worldwide's, there's the um, car sales, seek.coms, um, Appens, Altiums. I mean, the list is endless. Right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of sexy stocks. Um, even CSL, which I'd like to come back to, yep. has, has been up near that in that, in that, in that range. Cochlear is right up there. Um, Aspen, I think I've mentioned already. Now, quite a few of these have undergone a bit of a re-rating. And when I see a re-rating, it's maybe been down from 50 times down to 45 times. Yeah, wow. Huge uh, re-rating. Huge re-rating, <laughs> which is 10%, right? And if I can throw in a little joke, I mean, you know the difference between something that's, that's down 80% and something that's down 90%. Um, a lot of people think that one's just down a little bit more than the other. But something that's down 90% is actually something that was down 80% and then halved. Yeah. Right, if you think about it mathematically. So... So when the numbers get really big, it's very hard to, um, to measure risk at those levels because big movements in share prices can reduce multiples but, but at, a, at, a, at a big cost to your portfolio. So, so two things there. I mean, we are more cautious. Um, we have built up cash. Um, the average port a PE of our portfolio is approximately between 14 and 15 times um, versus a market that's up at 20 um, and, um, and we remain focused on buying companies where A, we think they're good businesses and we can understand them, B, um, that we trust the management and most importantly, um, C, where we can, we can get a decent after-tax cash earnings yield um, that, 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 that we can wrap our heads around. Can we talk a little bit about some of the companies you've been allocating to? So something like Bingo, for instance, yep. which always sticks in my mind because um, my, my youngest daughter, Lucy, I think two years ago went on a school excursion and came back and, and my wife, you know, very keen to hang around with the children, went as one of the class mums. And she came back and she said, you will not believe the tour we just had of this rubbish plant. And yeah. she said the recycling and the the level of the operation, all these kids came back with drink bottles and had an experience that I just couldn't believe that you know you could take someone to a rubbish dump and have a great experience for a school excursion. They came back and I said, wow. And I, it really stood out in my mind that 
that's a, a, an interesting operation to get that response. And I, you know, and, and I know you started investing in it, but maybe you could talk through the investment thesis for us yeah. and the, the additional investment you've recently made. Okay, so probably what I'm going to say to you then is, is, is probably a little surprising, but essentially we, we did not participate in the IPO of, of Bingo, which was approximately two years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, we did, however, buy the stock, our, our first position, a little later when it had actually fallen. And the main reason it had fallen is that people got post-IPO uh, regret. Um, the family, the Tartak family took a lot of money off the table and there was some negative media. You might have remember the Four Corners report on the recycling industry. We thought it created an opportunity. Now very simply put, the business model is, is as follows. Half the earnings come from collecting waste and the other half comes from post-collection processing. And I'll go into that in a bit more detail. But the real arbitrage, very, very simplistically, is that if you collect waste from anybody, you, you get to um, charge a price which allows for a margin above the transport cost and then the landfill levy that the government levies. And it's, it's currently over $100, plus your margin, plus your transport cost on that. The real trick then is, if you can process that waste, so you don't actually put it into landfill, but instead you recycle it and maybe even generate some revenue from recycling the metal or the concrete or even the wood, um, you can then reduce the amount of levy payable because you're not dumping it. And that's where the arbitrage is and that's where bingo makes money. And that's how the old industry makes money. So it's quite a good example of how environmental um, requirements from the community uh, in a capitalistic society prices that and then allows the operators to, to, to be smart, innovative, and actually um, efficient in, in making money out of that, um, that prerogative of, of not dumping. And what do they have versus their competitors that make them compelling, if anything? Yeah, so there's a few things. First of all, it has to be a scale business. So you've got to have a big fleet of trucks. You have to have transfer depots where you aggregate the waste that you pick up that is well located and a network effect. So they're all over the Sydney metropolitan area. And then you have to have access in scale to, um, to, to landfill so that you can have a decent price to dump what you can't recycle. But I guess most importantly is you need scale around and technology around the ability to sort the waste efficiently and produce clean product. When I talk about clean product, we just visited one of their, you know, as you say, waste, waste recycling um, landfills where essentially it's a big shed. Mixed waste comes in the one end and almost, um, it's almost like a, a um, production line where there are holes in the wall, in the shed, all along the way, and outspews your metal, outspews your wood, outspews your sand, outspews your concrete. And the cleaner that is, the higher the revenue generated from each of those products. To the extent that if you get it right, and we think Bingo is getting it right, it becomes not so much a waste collection business, but a building materials manufacturing business. And that was the big learning for me from visiting the plant. So we think they have scale. We think they've got a good network. 
So well located. Nobody else wants another transfer depot in their backyard. So the ones that are out there are now out there. And they have a very comprehensive setting. We're in the process of acquiring Dyla Dumps, uh, Eastern Creek Landfill, which is, which is a very good um, facility, um, which will solidify their position as a scale um, recycler. Now, can I say that the, the following two positions that we added, uh, the abilities for us to add to our position, was facilitated by two capital raisings, which were done at discounts to the ruling price, and the price moved up afterwards because the deals were quite accretive. Um, the last one was exceptionally accretive, as viewed by the market. Um, we already had a big position. Uh, we managed to collect an even bigger position. And um, based on the sharp move in the share price, we've substantially trimmed our position. So I guess in the last quarter, you'll see that we bought a lot of stock mm -hmm. and we sold quite a bit of stock uh, at a substantially higher price. Still have a reasonable position, but um, our view is that the margin for safety as investors reduces as the share price goes up, so you want to hold less, not more. Sure. And, and for the benefit of our listeners who aren't in the market and industries, uh, when they're making an accretive acquisition, it simply means that um, you're, you're buying a company at a value than less than what your current uh, earnings multiple is, so the, the, the re-rates up. And plus, plus there's some synergies, which means essentially one plus one equals three. You don't need two back office processing, Correct. payroll people, et cetera, et cetera. Fantastic. Okay, well, maybe we can talk a little bit then about CSL, which you flagged, um, that you wanted to circle back to. Correct. Um, what have you been doing with CSL? So CSL, for a, for a brief moment, was our biggest position in the, in the, in the portfolio. We, we started accumulating um, the position um, a long time ago. We think it's one of the best companies um, in the Australian Stock Exchange. So let's just remind our listeners what CSL actually okay. does. So essentially, CSL's got two businesses. The first one is um, it's the largest and most efficient global blood fractionation business, which essentially means that they have collection centers all over the world. People walk into the collection center, offer up their arms, um, and they're a, a couple of liters of plasma are extracted from their bodies. Well, they out get, of the blood. Out they, of the blood. They spin them around in centrifuges, right? That's right. So they, that out. they take blood out, they spin, spin them around in centrifuges, they take out the plasma, they give you back your lead, red blood cells, um, and they pay you for that, that privilege of doing that. Right? Yeah. And that's why people all over the States, the United States of America, do it. And people want the plasma because? They then take the plasma and they further fractionate it, and they take out things like immunoglobin, albumin and a whole lot of speciality products that are used to treat blood disorder diseases and autoimmune diseases around the world. Um, so it's seen as essential um, life-saving um, remedies. Mm -hmm. um, so it's economically insensitive and globally diversified um, and currency diversified. So it's a very stable, this is one of those toilet paper and toothpaste type business I spoke about where you know, we get really excited because they, the barriers to entry there are you need FDA approval, you need to be at scale, and you need to be very efficient. And if you get anything wrong, the FDA uh, can close you down for, for years, as we've seen some of their competitors experience. Um, there's things called last lethal economics, which I won't go into now, but essentially it means that the more um, 
products you can produce out of every liter of plasma, not in volume, but in different, taking out different products, the more profitable you can be and the better business you have. That's the one business. The other business is they have a vaccination business or a vaccine business, which um, has been making losses for a while. That's why the multiple looks very high. This business has turned the corner and is now an extremely profitable business forecasting going forward for a number of reasons. Again, the scale argument. Secondly, they've exerted the, um, the ability to, to make it more efficient. But thirdly, and probably the most exciting about this business, and it is a little sexy, so you will excuse me from maybe getting enthusiastic Diverging about it. But, um, but typically, vaccines worldwide were derived out of um, egg-based um, vaccines, where essentially you took an egg, a chicken's egg, and you inserted the virus or the vaccine uh, which grew in the, in the egg. And so you were limited by the number of eggs that you could have. Um, and you were limited technologically about what you could do once you'd, you'd, you'd inserted that vaccine into the egg. Uh, there's a funny story about at CSL, they found they had a lot of breakages of the eggs before, um, or spoilage before they could start um, playing with them or, or, or working with them. And they worked out it was because uh, in Melbourne they had a, a, an approach road that had all these bumps in them. So as the trucks were going over the bumps, it was breaking the eggs, which they fixed. But the reason why it's so exciting is that in the States, they've now developed a cell-based cult, um, culture, which means that they don't need eggs and they can actually do it, grow them in, in cells. Um, and that has had huge implications both for cost and for efficacy. So the last batch of vaccines was 75% more effective than the, than the egg-based vaccines. And they're the only ones um, doing this. And if somebody else had to try to do it, it would take them at least another three years. So, so we see great um, opportunity for this business. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why I wanted to cycle back to it is that this company, um, obviously, it was well discovered. Everybody thought it was a great business. And as a result, it started falling into that bubble bucket we spoke about. Mm -hmm. And we've taken, we've sold almost, um, almost half our holding, so we've reduced it substantially. The reason, two reasons why we haven't sold all of it, I think that over five to ten years the company has, um, has, has even better growth prospects. Um, and therefore you want a bigger margin of safety um, as the share price goes higher, so you want to hold less. So you want to have the ability to maybe buy more. Hold on, why do you want to hold less if you think it's going to go better? Okay, because a lot of the future growth was priced into it. Okay, so what type um, of earnings multiple is it, is it, was it trading at? It's come off a little bit in the last month. Though. Yeah, it has. So it's come back to within our range. But essentially, you know, we it use an after-tax cash earnings yield where we need yes. at least 6%. Yep. It got down to about 5.5. So because the share price went up, the after-tax cash earnings yield came back down to about 5.5% the way we work it out. Uh, we really struggled with that. Um, the, other sec the second factor was that we had massive capital gains. It had more than doubled. So we think about after-tax earnings. Given that we think that it will grow into its multiple over time, um, we, we took a halfway measure in reducing our position by half. Mm -hmm. um, so banking a lot of those profits quite proud of the fact that we got quite a bit out at the record highs. Um, but obviously, as it's come down, you know, the rest of our holding has, has, been, has been hurt. Mm -hmm. um, and it's now core holding. It's not the biggest. 
Um, we've reduced it substantially. Um, and, you know, without tax, I think we would have sold the whole holding. Um, but we think that we've got an adequate level now with good exposure to one of the, what we think is one of the premier companies around the world. Okay. If we could just maybe change tack and talk about non-Australian cash flow businesses or exposure to that within the portfolio, I think you've got some flexibility to maybe go up to 30% if I'm right. Mm. And in the past that you've had some New Zealand-based companies or otherwise. Mm. Um, at the moment, how are you positioned? So um, we've got approximately 10% of the portfolio in non-Aussie dollar-based earnings streams. Mm -hmm. so After, that, are they listed in Australia or are some of these listed overseas? Um, no, they're actually all listed in Australia. One of them is okay. dual listed in the States as well. And then we have three companies listed in New Zealand. Okay. Um, we've taken a view that we, we don't know where the Aussie dollar, New Zealand dollar uh, rate, exchange rate is going to go. So we've hedged all of that. So net of that hedge, we have a 10% uh, non-Aussie non dollar exposure. Um, we looked hard at getting more of it because we were bearish on the, on the Aussie dollar. But we found that a lot of those non-Aussie dollar earnings streams listed in Australia were well and truly in that bubble bucket. So we stayed away from them. Okay. Excellent. Well, I, I think we have covered off pretty good on a, an update. Of course, you know, despite you being bearish or otherwise, I've got to say thank you and congratulations on behalf of our investors of um, you know last 12 months being around the 11.4%, uh, which is very close to your since inception historical number. And you know, I, I, we love to say that the best way to make money is not to lose money. So we love to hear and speak to managers who have your type of approach and keep performing. So thank you very much. And thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.